Welcome to Cuba to you. Very dark times right now in our country, in America. Very sobering times. Very important times for discussion, for perspective, for honesty. I want to start by saying that this podcast exists to bridge the gap between Cuban Americans and their heritage and to introduce non-Cubans to Cuban culture. And in many ways, a lot of what I try to do on this podcast and through all the mediums, social media, and all the content that I put out, even music, is educate the public and Cuban people on all issues Cuban. I think it's a fair cause. I think that Cuban history is not well documented in media and pop culture. Shoot, I doubt it's being taught at schools. And while we are a small little island, and while our history is more recent in this country, that is, and our ties to this country are more recent, I still think it's appropriate to educate the world and the public on Cuba, especially considering the important role Cuba has played in American politics over the last, what, 60 years and beyond that. And so I come on here and I try to explain some things to people and I don't know who's listening and I don't know who's interested. And sometimes I feel like what I'm saying falls on deaf ears. Or rather, sometimes I feel desperate to educate people who have misinformation about Cuban history. When I see someone wear a Che Guevara shirt, I feel an urgency to explain to that person who that man was and why he shouldn't be iconized. Same with Fidel Castro. But today, I think it's appropriate to challenge the Cuban people. And I speak specifically to Cuban Americans. See, in Miami, Cubans are the majority. This is a fact. If you are a Cuban in Miami, you're practically white everywhere else. You are the majority in certainly most parts of Miami. And there are pockets of Miami that this is not representative. But if you think about the entire city, you think of Miami, you think of the beach, you think of Little Havana, you think of Cuban culture and Latin culture, and you know, you, you think of all the, you also think of mixed races, really, because that's what Miami is. It's a very multi ethnic place. Okay, it's not just Cuba, but all the Caribbean countries and all the Central American countries, and even foreigners from Europe. I mean, Miami is well represented in terms of representation. I mean, I think the biggest minority in Miami would be white if I had to venture a guess. But I think Cuban Americans have enjoyed a certain level, a certain level of privilege with being the majority. And I got to be honest with you. I enjoyed that privilege. I did not know. And when I say this, I do not say this because I could not have known. I say this because it's a fact. I did not know police brutality was a thing until I moved from Miami just four and a half hours north to a little town called Newport Ritchie, 
which is 40 minutes north of another big Cuban city, Tampa. I did not know police brutality was a regular problem for black people until I was told it by black people. Now, Miami, I had a lot of black friends and acquaintances. You know, I played football, and so a lot of people on the team were black, and I, you know, was in a hip-hop group, and I visited a lot of all-black churches and did a lot of work in that field with, with that demographic, right? But I never sat and had conversations with people about this. And so I always operated under the assumption that this wasn't really a problem. If you would have asked me at 15, is racism a problem in America? Or is police brutality a problem in America? I certainly would not have been able to answer. I might have said something like, well, no. Or I might have just not answered. And I think that that is understandable given my lack of education on the topic, but it reflects a certain level of privilege. Now, the the privilege is not that I, you know, it's not a demeaning term. I don't see it as a negative term. I'm not this guy that likes to wield these terms that are popular in pop culture, like systemic oppression and white privilege. I'm not the guy to just follow that trend and just say it because everybody pressures you socially into talking about these issues. I'm just saying on a, on a, like a raw basis, it was a privilege to not have to think about race because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Cuban, right? But I'm, I operate the majority in Miami and also I have very fair skin. So I have literally nothing working against me. Now, if I, if I, you know, interact with somebody who is like non-Cuban and has a problem with Cubans, then okay. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there were moments in my life where I experienced that, but there were few and far in between. Most of them happened when I left Miami, when I went to camp, you know, when I went to uh, summer camp and I saw white kids, you know, American kids, Caucasian kids that I, I don't get to interact with when I'm in Miami. And they say, you know, a little passing comments or maybe they, you know, made, made a, make a comment that is derogatory. That's the extent of what I experienced, but I didn't know about this larger world that black people live in. And that black people have been talking about for 400 years. And all of that hit me directly in the face this past week. But I want to be clear. I have been educated on this topic long before this week. Like I have listened to and talked with voices in the black community about this topic and have understood to an extent the level of mistrust in Americana from the black community because of the history of oppression in this country. Okay, so I had, I, I, I wasn't necessarily ignorant anymore. Okay, when I saw the Tamir Rice shooting, when I was really following closely the Trayvon Martin shooting, I was empathetic to those causes. But there was still a part of me that was ignorant a part of me that was ignorant to the problem, the big capital P problem. See, I always thought, look, if you grow up in the hood or if you grow up with the circumstances that are bad around you, you could still work your way out of it and make it. So don't come at me with all this. The the government or the white man is trying to oppress me. Nonsense. That's how I saw it. I didn't, I didn't think about it cynically. I thought it like, yo, come on, this is America. You can 
you can overcome these battles. You can you can grow. Look at I might have even found myself saying something like we have a black president. Like that's that should be the evidence that you're not stuck, truly not stuck. You know, look at all the successful athletes. Look at all the successful business owners, all the successful stars in Hollywood and in pop culture and inventors and all the things. I'd be like, look at them. Where's the systemic oppression for them? And I would absolutely defend these things. And always believing that I was still an ally to my black friends with regard to things like police brutality. But something this last week and with the Ahmaud Arbery case hit me directly in the face. I don't think I realized just how deeply embedded and how deeply rooted racism is in this country. Now, that's the thing, right? It's a root. The roots aren't something you see. They are the thing that sustains what you do see. What you do see is often far prettier than the root. It's often more aesthetic, easier to look at. Okay, there's a reason that the roots are underground. And so I think that what most people struggle with when you talk about systemic racism is they say, well, come on, like, look how far we've come. What they fail to realize is the roots of white supremacy were never removed. So how could that tree have been cut down? You might have taken branches off. You might have taken a large part of the tree off. But you did not take away the tree. And so it will grow again. Maybe under different circumstances. Maybe in different ways. And I think it's time that Cubans and Cuban Americans come to grips with the fact that maybe they don't know everything about politics and American history because they've enjoyed the greatest part of Americana. I long to be the biggest voice for Cuba, for Cuba, for Cubans. That's my heartbeat. Nobody can look me in the face. Anybody who knows me, nobody can look me in the face and say, ah, you're not... You don't understand the, you know, the Cuban history or the Cuban struggle, or you are, uh, you're against Cubans. Miss me with that nonsense. If you know me, you know that's false. You know I bleed this. I cry for this. But we got to be wrong if we're wrong. And I do not understand Cuban Americans' blind adoration. Now, when I say blind, I mean, I don't understand how Cuban Americans can be so cynical towards black people. And when I say cynical, I mean racist. I'm sorry. It's facts. Our community is an amazing community. The C Cuban people are filled with warmth and love and light and if anybody understands oppression, it's us. Yet for some reason, I think that we've assimilated into an attitude of racism toward black people. When really, we identify more with them if you really think about it. 
I'm going to be vulnerable here for a second. When I came up here to go to college, I went to a Bible college that I love. I have nothing but good things to say about a lot of the people there. But I'm going to be honest with you. The school was not well represented ethnically. What you had was a lot of Caucasian students. Again, a lot of them, amazing people. And you had a minority of Hispanic and black students. The, a lot of the black students played basketball, both male and female, and were there to essentially get their leg in on collegiate sports, a route to potentially other schools, to potentially find a way to play the game that they love at a collegiate level. When I got to Trinity, I had the reverse privilege of being stuck in environments and with people that I never really did life with in Miami. There was no Cubans at Trinity. I had nobody to talk to that was Cuban. And I found myself slowly not relating to the white people. And I don't mean this in a negative way. I just found myself having some cultural differences. I found myself finding more myself more in common, whether it be musical taste, whether it be sport conversations, talking about basketball, or what have you, whether it just be similar upbringings with my fellow black students. My roommate, Giovante Griffin, from South Florida like myself, there was even more of a connection point. Not only was he a, a black man, but he was from a similar town and era of me. So now we're talking about stuff we experienced back home. So I had the privilege of being, be it fate, be it God, I don't believe in fate, come on now. It was God's grace. My best friend, Joel Asensio, black, Puerto Rican. Another great friend of mine I hung out with all the time, Gregory Buckshawn. Chris Thomas, Elliot Smith. These are guys I hung out with regularly. Now, I'm not, I'm not throwing my bona fides out there. I'm not saying I have a lot of black friends. The point I'm making is something happened when I had to listen to their voices. Something shifted in my brain. Something about me understood a little bit, and I admit a little bit, about what they're culture is like about the things they value and it wasn't like all roses but I got to talking with a lot of people and realized where they're coming from and I also experienced moments of racial profiling for being friends with these people for being friends with black people I experienced this it was a thing that happened so Fast forward to this week, and I realized that I had missed so much more than I thought. When I realized that I was now a minority living in Trinity, Florida, that's when I realized I identified more with black people than I did with white people when it came to feeling like a minority. But there was still a part of me that was influenced by a very Cuban part of me, which is patriotic. You guys have to understand something about Cubans. 
there's a reason they're patriotic. Just like there's a reason that black people do not have trust for our government. There's a reason black people feel like police are out to get them. Not all. I'm not speaking for everybody. I'm not black. I can't speak for every black person. But what we've seen over these over these last few weeks even is a general distrust for the criminal justice system, a general mistrust in the system, the system being represented by a variety of things, education, the workplace, media portrayals. That distrust is valid. It's rooted in history. Well, so is Cuban patriotism. That's what I want people to understand. I'm not asking you to deny your patriotism, Cubans. You have a good reason to be patriotic. This country accepted us. We fled communism. We fled a horrible systemic oppression in which everybody was given the same ceiling unless you were complicit in oppressing the people, unless you were a plain-clothed officer of the Cuban state or you worked directly for the Cuban state, but even some of them didn't have food in their fridge. We were victims of great oppression, which led to an exile of over a million Cubans, many of which, a million is those who made it, many of which didn't even make it across the water. So I'm, the reason I'm prefacing this is, yeah, we love America. America accepted us. America gave us a home. America showed us land of the free, home of the brave, and all those beautiful sentiments, and there is a justifiable patriotism that would come with that. But it did not do the same for black people. And for some reason, that sentence causes people to roll their eyes. But why? It's like having a friend. Let's say you and another friend of yours have a mutual friend. We'll call your mutual friend Bob. Okay, Bob is really nice to you. Every time you hang out, you guys have good laughs. You know, every time you invite him over, he brings a, you know, he brings a bottle of wine or he, he comes over and brings food. He offers to pay for things if you go out. He asks you how your family's doing, how your wife is doing, how your kids are doing. But let's say Bob meets your mutual friend, James. And Bob just doesn't like James. Bob is mean to James. Bob is rude to James. Bob talks bad about James to you. But James is your friend. Now, is it accurate to say that Bob is not your friend? No. Is it accurate to say Bob has not been nice to you? No. But it is accurate to say that he's the mutual friend that's just not very nice to James for some reason. And that's not okay, even though he's nice to you. Cubans and blacks have a mutual friend named America, and that mutual friend named America is nicer to Cubans, historically speaking. But understand, Cubans are not immune to American injustice either. The Bay of Pigs, the Brothers to the Rescue Flights, the CIA, the confirmed declassified CIA plan to bomb Miami, and blame it on Fidel Castro? These were instances where American government looked at Cubans and said, bleep you. And yet we still cling chiefly to Americana. 
And I think it's because we know just how bad communism is, which has been the political antithesis to American politics, right? It's America and communism. Those, those are the two that we think of. And socialism, we would call socialism as well. But, but communism is the, is the Lex Luthor to capitalism and America's Batman. Sorry, Superman. Man, my, my comic book friends are going to be very upset at me. Well, Batman's in the Justice League and they fight Lex Luthor all the time. So, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm going to double down on it. Yeah, he's the Lex Luthor to Batman, Superman, and all the Justice the Justice League and all the Super Friends. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so because communism, which is what Cubans fled, is the symbolic political enemy of American ideals, naturally good guy, bad guy, Cubans say America, good guy, everybody else, bad guy. And in the conversation of communism, they happen to be right. We happen to be right. I'll fight for that. You're not going to, you're not going to see me out here defending communism, but I think it did something to our allegiances. It did something to the way that we think about America that makes it really hard to accept a narrative that disarms it. Like, for example, slavery, segregation, mass incarceration, police brutality, and systemic oppression, all of which are equally true about America the beautiful. This country has been brutally heinous to people of color. Brutally. I went up to Monticello in Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's estate. And they did not hide the slavery that existed on his plantation. They did not hide the effect of slavery. They did not hide the lengths that they would go to to use underage black girls to make their products. They did not hide the instances of rape because I don't care what you think. If you own somebody, sex cannot be consensual. They didn't hide that. I came back from there thinking, Thomas Jefferson, wow, brilliant man, but also evil. And that was fully accurate. If I walked away from there saying, you know what, he was just evil, I think I would have missed a great part of what he did. But if I walked away from there with positive Americana sentiments about how great he was and all the things that the founding fathers laid for this country, I would be missing a more crucial element which is the fact that he was human. The fact that he was human and evil. Just like anybody can be evil. Yes, owning people is bad enough to tarnish your legacy in that way, but it doesn't truly tarnish your legacy. It just accurately reports it. Fidel Castro, perfect example. I don't care what you did in Angola. I don't care what you think you did in Ethiopia. You have done too much evil for that to be to your credit. Do you understand? And I think that because we condemn and hate 
communism and lack and suppression of freedoms and America champions that we have an unusually strong allegiance to America even though we've suffered American betrayal as well but here's my problem your black friends are telling you that America has been mean to them they are presenting you with the evidence of oppression and racism and the roots of white supremacy that have blossomed into a tree that listen sometimes it's not really recognizable and I want to make the point white supremacy is not that white cops are going out and hunting black people it is that there is a system in place that began the militarization of police the war on drugs there is a system today that originated for racial purposes and therefore it is a part of a racist system that does not mean that all the parts that play in that system are racist they're obviously black police officers and black judges what it means is that the system itself unless dismantled or at least recognized to have its roots in white supremacy there's never going to be growth from it if we can't even start at bleeping you're right black people you are oppressed just that thought that term you hear it and you say no they're not oppressed like they can work hard and they can make it in life and you would be right but there will always be a ceiling for black people and I'm telling you this because this is what my black friends tell me and who the hell am I to tell them they're wrong J. Cole put it best in the song Neighbors this is one thing you can't escape death taxes and a racist society that makes every n-word feel like a candidate for a Trayvon type of fate even if your plaques hang on a wall, even if the president jams your tape. This is a real thing felt by even the most successful black people in this country feel like they're at the end of the day, their black skin could always get them into trouble. They could always fit a description. They could always be limited. White supremacy also doesn't mean that every single black person in this country is oppressed to the point where they're starving. And I think it's important to know nobody is saying that you can't be successful as a black person. They are saying that the system that was originated by racism hasn't been dismantled. The war on drugs is still the war on drugs. We treat drugs like a crime issue. Well, that originated in many ways to imprison blacks more harshly than they would imprison whites when they gave more time for crack than cocaine. It's the same freaking drug. But crack was being sold in the black communities, so you charge that one higher. There are a lot of things in our system that originated in racism, in white supremacy, in a culture of white supremacy. And so, so long as those things still exist, yes, technically, there's always an avenue, a legal avenue to oppress black people. That's logical. I think that logically follows. That's like right now, you Cuban who's listening to me, and I hope, I hope you've been following me here. I know we're 27 minutes in. I hope you've stayed with me here. I want you to know I'm like, I'm for Cuban issues. I'm against communism. I'm against any, when, when Colin Kaepernick wore a Fidel Castro t-shirt, I came out and criticized him brutally. And guess what? I stand by my criticism. It was stupid. 
It was cognitive dissonance. It was complaining about oppression. And I'm not going to say complaining. It was protesting oppression, which was going on. And at the same time, wearing an oppressor on your shirt. It was foolishness. Okay, I'm for Cuban issues. But it's like if right now a new leader were to become president in Cuba, but they did not get rid of the laws ingrained into the system right now that oppress people in Cuba. Like, for example, it's like if they were to change everything in the Constitution, but leave like... um leave the lack of freedom of the press and lack of freedom of expression in there and allow trade and allow all these things and allow businesses. But the two things that contributed most to the oppression in Cuba, freedom of expression and freedom of the press would still be suppressed 20 years from now, when you have people who are successful and you have people who are growing, but all the journalists are in prison and all the activists are in prison. Can we say that Cuba progressed past it's communist dictatorship. No, because it still has not dealt with a problem that it had under that system. And the fact that Americans don't even recognize it because they can't see it with their own two eyes because they likely have not spoken to black people about it or likely they don't even know that a lot of these laws began uh, with racial motivations. It's hard for them to relate. But I challenge you, Cuban-Americans... To listen. To listen. Talk talk to your black friends if you have any. If you don't make some, talk to them. Ask their insight. Gain perspective on this issue. Understand that you will walk out of that conversation relating more than disagreeing. Because if anybody knows what it's like to be oppressed, if anybody knows what it's like for a government and a police, specifically the police, to harass a group of people, it would be Cubans. We have to become allies to this cause. We have to become allies to this cause because otherwise we're going to land on the very wrong side of history. And I believe Cubans are too good, too smart, And too aware of how a government can oppress a people to ignore this issue. How many times have you been told how great Fidel Castro is because of the education and the health care? That's the same anger that black people feel when you tell them all lives matter, when you tell them that the government's not oppressing them, it's just their personal decisions. Try to relate to them. Try to understand them. And I believe we can have real conversations. And I believe Cubans have a real seat at this conversation, man. We know what it's like to be both a minority and a majority. That's a crazy privilege to have. We know both. We can relate to both sides of this table. But that should make us more nuanced, more educated. It shouldn't make us more radical. And so I hope we listen. And I hope we love. And love by listening. Thank you.